Hello. Hi, how's it going? Oh my gosh, it's nice to hear your voice. You too. It's been so long. It's nice to be back. Yeah. I feel like a a rare uh, natural repeat. Like I'm just, you know, erupted through the ground or something. (laughs) Get to to be seen again. It's a rare occurrence. It's like the corpse flower or something like that. (laughs) Yeah, it's been at least a year. I think so. I think so. And in the interim, I think I've actually like met you in person. I think that came in the middle. Oh, yeah. Had we not met when you were first on? I don't know. No. I'm not 100% sure. I I mean, we could consult the historic record, but. Yeah, we don't need to do that. It's history is all interpretive anyway, right? That's just subjective. Make it up. Um, Yeah, that was last summer. So it's been a while. Oh, my gosh. God, that's that's a fucking eon ago at this point yeah it was like another geological era yeah Um, (laughs) yeah that's the jurassic um and so much has changed obviously in the world which we don't need to talk about but a lot has changed for you too you are doing your own podcast now Mm -hmm. it's which is very exciting it is uh i started recording uh, about a month ago, doing a weekly show called Terrific City. Um, after meeting somebody, uh, Cheyenne Picardo, my co-host and also my producer and uh, editor, she and I just sort of fell into this groove of talking about 70s nostalgia. Um, and I had just been really obsessed with um, going back into sort of the Nixon era to make sense of the complicated moment that we live in now, which we don't mm. have to talk about. Um, and I don't know if the, if the, our show has sort of like two books that created it, it exists somewhere between Rick Perlstein, the historians, Nixon land and Samuel Delaney's Times Square Red, Times Square Blue. Mm-hmm. So we talk about uh, film and politics and TV and city life in the 70s. And our season right now is is Times Square in the 70s. So it's um, it is an excuse to talk to good people in yeah. a lot of ways. <laughs> um, we've talked to – I spent this week, uh, funnily enough, on the day that Hugh Hefner kicked it, um, <laughs> talking to a porn scholar – uh, Mireille Miller Young about the the role of of black women in the golden age of porn, which was kind of the best way I think to spend that afternoon. It was quite mm-hmm. a dark afternoon, a, a for a morose afternoon, more accurately. Um, so I don't know. It's you know it's an experiment. It's a grand experiment. Who knows if if we'll stick around? There's like a lot of seventies to cover, but you know we're only going to keep doing it if people want us to. Yeah, well, I want you to. Um, it feels like there is good reason to go back to that moment, um, especially in and around Times Square in New York right now. Um, I feel like a lot of people I know are sort of reflecting on on the 70s and 80s, especially around the sexual politics um, of mm-hmm. those periods and the ways that public space... Um, and uh, government funding and all kinds of other dynamics were changing around this stuff. Um, so my friend Morgan Page um, has also talked about this a lot on her podcast, One from the Vaults. 
Um, I've been reading actually some of Sarah Shulman's books, which deal with this kind of era as well. So gentrification of the mind is probably the biggest one. Um, Mm -hmm. And I feel like it's so useful to reflect on like that period right now and just thinking about like the ways that people responded to these crises that were happening at the time and how we can use those lessons now. Yeah, it's sometimes uh, frustrating to look back because it feels like, oh, wow, like we're just dealing with unfinished business and decades before. And uh, maybe there were things then that, you know, were suppressed in our political educations, our history educations, that if we had known them, um, you know, we would be better positioned right now. And I I am not by any stretch a historian in the big H, you know, officially credentialed set sense. I think a lot like Morgan, I'm interested in the the juicier real life parts of what was going on. And I love going back and looking at the works of, of legitimate historians and drawing on that. Um, but there's something about grounding what we're doing in city life that lets it feel a little more tangible and closer to us. I mean, just the fact that this, this first season recovering New York and I live in New York, so I can stand on the street corner Um, and read a story from the New York Times in 1971 about what was happening on that street corner. And, you know, I would love to be able to do that for like other parts of the country too, in other cities as we keep going. But New York in the 70s, they're almost synonymous. Like if there's one physical location that you could point to and say, that's where the 70s were really the 70s, it would have to be New York City, right? And, And the sexual politics then in some ways feel um, like they were the politics, like you couldn't separate the two in the ways that has, you know, people have tried in the years since. No, absolutely. And I think Times Square, uh, Times Square Blue, and then some other books as well. Um, there's one, the name of which I always forget, but I'll put in the show notes when I remember it um, about, oh, uh, The Trouble with Normal. Oh, um, I don't know that one. I think I've heard the title, but I actually haven't read it. Uh, you, you should definitely check it out. It is, it's, uh, Michael Warner Mm -hmm. and it was published in the nineties, but there's a whole chapter on zoning and public space and sex and specifically looking at New York. Um, and I think it's actually more about the nineties, but it's sort of an extension of the politics of the seventies and eighties of like cleaning up Times Square Um, and really shifting how that space was used and who it was for. One of the things that that we're realizing is you can't really talk about Times Square in the 70s without talking about the later decades also. Mm. So, like, in a way, the image of Times Square, the memory of Times Square in the 70s is the thing that is invoked in the 80s and 90s and even up to the present day as, like, that thing we have to make sure never happens again. Like, that it almost seems like a way of abstracting the actual human cost of what the redevelopment of Times Square meant and just making it, you know, into these caricatures, whether that's, you Mm. know, squeegee men or cruising or graffiti. Even we talked to the former Manhattan borough president, Ruth Messenger, and she was saying even into the, you know, the later decades, people would, would complain to her about graffiti on the subways. And her response would be like, there hasn't been graffiti on the subways in like 15 <laughs> years. Like, do, you, do you go on the subway or is that just like a thing that you bust out? Mm. Uh, my words, not hers. When mm-hmm. you, when you, <laughs> when you want to talk about the bad old days and, 
maybe our present moment feels so apocalyptic. The idea of invoking the bad old days feels a little hollow right now. Um, you know, it's also a sort of a strange summer in New York. Our subways feels like it's falling apart in the same ways that we've been told it did in the seventies. So that's, I don't know. I think time isn't really historic time doesn't work in a linear progression, right? Like Mm -hmm. we don't just keep moving forward and it feels, it feels very important right now to sort of stick our noses back in that decade and, and figure out what we didn't learn the first time around. I, I don't know about you, like even growing up in the, in the U S like my history education basically ended with world war two. Mm-hmm. So it, you know, this feels also like a civic duty to go back and like figure out what was going on in the decade in which I was born and how we got there and, and everything that has been suppressed and hidden from us about that era. Um, like I keep wanting to, um, with caution, revisit sort of second wave feminism and, and sort of rehabilitate it. I feel like it's gotten a wrap from this moment. Um, and just this this rap is you know it, always anti sex work always anti trans a hundred percent white dominated and I feel like that does a real disservice to things that projects that people were part of and movements people were part of at that time that that's just not the official story that got told so that's that's in the back of my mind too as we do this like we've done a month of episodes about porn and we have barely even talked about the porn wars partially because they don't really start until the later part of the decade and the earlier part of the decade, you don't even have feature porn yet. You know, porn exists on eight millimeter loops that people watch by themselves in a physical location. They have to go to a peep show or an adult bookstore or they buy them under the counter. And if they have a projector at home, they can watch them at home. And Mm -hmm. we're almost back to that kind of that very individual relationship to porn, right? Because people are now mostly watching porn um, alone or on a phone somewhere out mm-hmm. in the world and trying to not let people see it or, you know, whatever. It's that it feels like a return to the peep show, that communal era of Times Square and that the later part of the decade and in through the 90s until it was demolished of going out to a porn theater and watching this in a, in a communal environment. That was in reality just sort of a, a blip in time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I have watched porn in a theater, except it was under like the very... Um, uh, sanitized, kind of cleaned up uh, mode of like a porn awards show or festival. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's very in the mode of a film festival. And except it, it's kind of awkward because you have all these people who are like dressed up and in like this, you know, really nice theater. And um, there's just porn being like shown on on this huge screen, and people. I feel like aren't really sure how to deal with that (laughs) because it isn't something that we, we do for the most part anymore. And it it was more kind of awkward than anything. I'm going to sneeze. Hold on. (laughs) Okay. I'm not going to sneeze. That wasn't a reaction to to porn. No, you made me, (laughs) you made me. I hate sex. No. Um, I, I was remembering the Castor theater in San Francisco, which is like my all time, well, it used to be my favorite movie theater in the world. Now I'm going to say it's like in the top the top three because the Egyptian theater in L.A. is, I think, actually better programming than the Castro Theater does now. Anyway, that's neither here nor there. This is this beautiful Art Deco theater. And I never saw porn there, but I can tell you, like, this is the theater that probably for me came the closest to that communal erotic experience of going to the movies. And maybe some of that was just geographics, you know, it's, 
it's in the heart of the Castro. It's at 18th and Market. This is where every protest that comes out of the Castro convenes. And this is where Pink Saturday happens during Pride with huge street parties with the Sisters of Perpetual Indulgence. And this is just, there's a lot going on at that that intersection in the world. And the theater is sort of this container for it. And I saw, I think it was It. It was It by with Clara Bow. Only time anyone's ever picked me up in a theater. Like total strangers sitting next to me. And it, it worked. Um, like no names even exchanged. So I don't know. I mean, theaters, I think, have this erotic or sexual anonymous encounter potential. Like maybe not in a festival context like you were talking about, but I'm sure people cruised and could hook up there. But I think, yeah, we you have to be taught how to watch porn publicly. And I and I think, you know, maybe some people feel like, oh, well, it didn't come naturally to me and it felt awkward. So this must be an awkward thing to do. And I think it is both a fundamentally awkward thing to do and a thing that you can be socialized around, right? That's sort mm-hmm. of what Samuel Delaney is talking about in Times mm-hmm. Square, right? Times Square Blue, these are collective social experiences. And that's, that's why it's so tragic to lose them. Uh, the, the other part of, of that era that we're getting into, which I didn't really think of along the same lines as, as the loss of like Times Square as a space, you know, that kind of social mix master around porn and other adult businesses um, is how interconnected that was to the rest of city life. And I feel like now this is sort of the legacy of, of gentrification. Like our lives in cities are so compartmentalized. The sex industry that remains in New York are just the people who can afford to work here mm-hmm. and are least likely to get arrested. The, city social life feels very fragmented and compartmentalized. You know, you're not, you've got to go out of your way to really encounter people outside your immediate work life or friends that you already have. Like, I feel like it's not an easy place to cross paths with someone whose life is very different from your own, except for just a moment. I spent a day at Penn Station reporting a story, just like literally fly on the wall. Um, And everyone's just, you know, in their own little bubble. And part of that's Penn Station today is a horrible place. Like you just want to get the <laughs> it's fuck a nightmare. out. It is terrible. And they've changed the board. Like they used to have this amazing fit, like um, the flip letter board. board. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh God. And now it's all digital and it's just terrible. So I, you know, it's not a great space, but there's a reason that people sort of attach sex panics to train stations and bus stations. And it's because it's where people of all different walks of life cross and could perhaps have intimate contact with one another. And if that's going down at Penn station now, um, I was not seeing it at all. Like in, in fact, like the only reason people talk to me is because I was leaning against a Amtrak customer service table. And like a few people like asked me for how to, change the ticket or get on a train and I was like I'm just a reporter I can't help you with that if I did to help somebody get on the subway that was helpful I told them how much it cost (laughs) they're very very you know I guess this is another another thing that journalism can a service journalism can provide the ailing subway system of New York right now Mm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. (laughs) yeah and this is something that you've been involved in writing a lot more about lately is um the ways that sex work is being policed in New York, especially um, around this concept of trafficking. Yeah, it it was kind of a shitty way to um, enter into the Trump era. The morning that Trump was elected, 
I was already scheduled to meet with a woman who's part of a class action lawsuit against the NYPD um, who had been arrested so many times in her neighborhood in New York that she had actually had to move, that police would, even if they weren't going to arrest her, would harass her whenever they saw her on the street. The way that prostitution policing in New York plays out is once you're arrested once, police treat you and anywhere you go as potentially being prostitution again even if you're walking down the street. And, you know, this is a story that, you know, I've been hearing a lot from trans women in particular and in Queens, like really being a hotbed of this, but it's a common practice uh, across prostitution policing. And so this class action lawsuit is cis and trans women. I think all of them are women of color. And there's about a dozen of them suing the city and NYPD. So I had, had been interviewing some of the women in the class and we were at the end of the reporting process, going to go out and do a photo shoot. And it was tricky because we couldn't do the photo shoot in the actual neighborhoods that they lived in because of the police. So we had fabricated this whole, um, you know, lower Manhattan location that could sort of not necessarily look like lower Manhattan. And, um, and then that morning was sort of the morning that the city, the country, the world was reeling from the news of, of Donald Trump. And I, I asked one of the legal aid attorneys, um, who's representing the women, what that was going to mean for them. And they were, I mean, it, it was interesting. I won't say that her face went blank, but it was sort of, it sunk with this reality that like, oh God, everything that we do now is going to be about damage control from this, whether that's around immigration or sex work. And sometimes the two go together. So after that story, the next big piece that I worked on for the Village Voice was about how the prostitution arrests that the NYPD do funnel people into this this problem solving court that's called the Human Trafficking Intervention Court, and that court, uh, like many municipal courts in the U.S. and the Trump era, have become a place for ICE to try to pick up undocumented folks. So that had happened this June in in Queens and a woman in trafficking court who it is unknown if she was actually trafficked. Like that's not something that trafficking court does. Trafficking court doesn't prosecute people for trafficking. What it does is it regards anybody arrested for prostitution as a potential victim of trafficking and, and tries to intervene by mandating that they go to a certain amount of therapy sessions. And the intervention itself is questionable, but in this moment, having to turn up to court and prove that you went to therapy and that you're progressing and complying with this intervention program every single time you come to court is a possibility that you're going to interact with ICE. And for undocumented folks, that makes going to court now very dangerous. And so the the situation for you know anybody who's sort of ensnared in this kind of low-level policing in New York, which is chronic, um, for so-called quality of life crimes, whether that's prostitution or turnstile jumping or graffiti, any of these things, um, marijuana possession, even though they're not supposed to be making arrests for that, they police continue to do that. Every interaction you have with law enforcement raises the stakes that you're going to end up in immigration detention um, if you're undocumented or if your immigration um, isn't in order. So it's it's a really scary moment. I think our already very dangerous system of policing, like it's just like someone turned up the heat and it's really, it's, it, it's through that fear. I think that it's effective. Like they're not arresting everybody um, who is an immigrant doing sex work and they're not sending everybody to traffic in court and they're not 
detaining and deporting everybody who then goes through trafficking court, but just the fear that it could happen to you at any time, that, that's enough to really destroy uh, a community's trust in not only the justice system, but also anybody who might, they might need to ask for help. Right, absolutely. And um, our friend Charlotte, uh, Charlotte Shane, uh, the other day, uh, tweeted something. I think someone uh, was saying like, oh, if you suspect that someone may be being trafficked, call ICE. And she was saying like, never, never do this. Don't do this. It's it's a terrible thing. Um, so what? how would you like, if someone, you know, if, if someone is thinking like, oh, I'm, I'm a pretty progressive person. And, you know, I think sex work, if someone is doing it freely chosen, like whatever that means in the context of a uh, coercive uh, market economy. Um, I'm, I'm okay with that, but you know, I've been hearing for decades that the, uh, trafficking, human trafficking is this huge problem and people are being abducted and forced into sex work. Like, um, and how do we address that? Like, how would you, I guess, assuming that someone is coming into this with like all, all only things they've heard from like, uh, from sort of trafficking organizations which have gotten government funding and and thus have sort of a monopoly on the public conversation how would you talk to them about this Mm -hmm. or what would you say to them i think i think i i know what you're talking about what charlotte had posted was a it was a photo of an ad on the subway in new york um our subways are places police hang out on all the time also um and and this ad said you know it was essentially if you see something say something but for human trafficking and offered no information of what the something might be and the thing it wanted you to do was to call an ice hotline and you know that's honestly, probably one of the most dangerous things that you could do for somebody in a, in a trafficking situation, um, particularly if, if immigration is a concern for them and their status to legally remain in the country or safely remain in the country or their family status. So it's that would, I would say, don't do that. Don't call ICE. Please don't call ICE. There's basically no reason any citizen ever has to call ICE, um, for any reason. Uh, unless, of course, you're calling ICE to ask that they release people, which is one thing that some folks who are, have been detained and folks who are campaigning for their release are doing. That accepted. Very dangerous thing to do to call ICE. Like immigration proceedings are different than criminal court proceedings in the U.S. You don't have the same right to an attorney. And if you already have an attorney, there are chances of finding you in that system um, it's very difficult for them to find you and to keep track of you. People really do disappear into the system. And that's a risk that, you know, you are putting someone in that situation. If you, if you're involving ice in their lives, um, I was talking to someone this morning who saw that, that conversation unfold and she was, you know, really, really just struggling with the idea that like, but you know, why, like, wouldn't it, you know, I don't understand. Like if, if somebody's really going through a trafficking situation, like, you know, maybe it's better for them to be uh, deported than be a sex slave and putting that aside, which is like, would you like to make that choice in your own life? And would you like a third party to make that choice for you? Um, Putting that aside, there are other resources out there for folks. Um, there's the Freedom Network, which in the U.S. is the largest network of service providers uh, working on trafficking, labor trafficking, and sex trafficking. I just say trafficking because 
the fact that the law differentiates and that the field differentiates between labor and sex trafficking, the only reason that they are considered separate things is because sex work is considered illegitimate by our legal system. Um, but know that this is an organization that, that deals with all forms of trafficking, people of all ages and with all different kinds of immigration situations. And they're social service providers. They are not law enforcement. I, I really, after having covered this issue for as long as I have, I struggle to see how involving law enforcement um, as a first responder in issues of human trafficking um, produces good outcomes, let alone the dangerous, the danger they may bring. Like, I don't see the the good outcomes in that. You know, they are most likely going to be having contact with somebody who is being trafficked and their goal is going to be to prosecute someone for trafficking them. And their goal is not necessarily going to be to provide care for that person. They also don't have the resources to provide that care. If they do, they're just going to be calling a community-based organization that can. So just go to the community-based organization first, I would say. You know, why um, involve law enforcement? Let that be the choice of the person who's in that situation once they're in a position to make that choice. And the Freedom Network is is the first stop I would make. That's Great advice, I think, if for for people wondering about this stuff. Yeah, um, I'm curious. You were you mentioned earlier the ways that, especially like street sex workers, um, are once they're in that system of law enforcement, then they're sort of seen as potential, uh, potentially doing sex work just by being present somewhere. Um, and actually, my my advisor in grad school, Catherine Beckett, wrote a book or co-authored a book called Banished in 2009. And um, it's it was specifically, I think it was more about um, people in like, um, people like dealing with homelessness. Um, but the book was basically about the practices of like zoning and like, municipal laws that basically ban people from certain spaces um using this philosophy of like broken windows or like zero tolerance um for like uh drug dealing or um like rough sleeping or things like that and just Mm -hmm. basically pushing people around the city and out of different neighborhoods And, and that's something that i know has happened around sex work as well and my experience with this is in a uk context um where do you know about antisocial behavior orders? I do. The ASBOs. ASBOs. When, yeah. I, when I was studying in England and heard about this, it just, I mean, we have similar kinds of dynamics here, but when I first heard about this, it was like, wow, England is like a really surveillance focused and kind of authoritarian society in a way that feels distinct from like the practices of control feel kind of distinct and, and yeah, not sort of identical to the ones here, but these these are orders for people who don't know that are basically they're civil civil orders given to people who are like judged to have been antisocial in some way. So like it's mostly quality of life things like you're talking about. So like being drunk in public or like being intimidating or just these things. But the key Anything thing we would kind of put under the umbrella of like disorderly conduct. Exactly. And, right. But the key thing is that violating those orders is a criminal offense. Um, and so it's this weird and like terrifying system of 
basically like this and the the banished book are like ways of criminalizing populations and kinds of people and uh people being in public spaces which also feeds back into what we were talking about before of like the ways that public spaces are have changed um or are have been have been changed by yeah. by specific uh laws and policies it's i i heard about the asbos for the first time through I may have been the English collective of prostitutes who are an organization that goes back to the seventies themselves. And they um, are very active on campaigning around this. And the, um, the main thing they've really been active on lately has actually been immigration, which everywhere has been a huge issue. Um, but when I was in the UK in, in 2014 on a book tour, I did an event in Brighton it was part of the festival of ideas and there were cops there like Brighton, I guess, met cops and they, we got involved in this audience conversation about ASBOS. I think there's a recording of it. I haven't listened to it in a long time, but the, the gist of it was there were also sex workers in the audience. And, you know, I, I, maybe people have this, this, this idea in their heads in the UK system that because you know, it's not like you're necessarily going to jail. This is just sort of a, a form of social compliance that we expect of you. And the and the criminal consequences of it are sort of, you know, held over off to the side as if they just somehow don't matter. Um, but nobody really fundamentally questions like, well, why are we using the threat of criminal consequences to shape people's behavior in public space? Like, why is that a, a, a thing to do with the law? And why is that a thing that we should ask the police to why why is that their job and it's it's not something that's existed forever right these were choices that people made and I, I think of that kind of policing as like it's urban planning right it's like deciding like who gets to go in what neighborhoods and what certain neighborhoods feel like I was just reading a story this morning on uh, the Baltimore City paper which is soon going to stop publishing uh, it's been a really, really bad time for alt weeklies, and, and thinking of alt weeklies as sort of part of the fabric of city life too is is really scary to lose that. Uh, the Village Voice is considerably diminished right now. Also, I'm really lucky to have got to write for them, but I feel like I got to write for them sort of at the end. And it's it's it was the city paper who did maybe one of the the most focused articles about what street life was like for sex workers in Baltimore and for trans sex workers in particular, and. I didn't know this, that there was a gentrification battle recently in Baltimore between the Eagle, like a historic mm-hmm. leather bar, which had recently been purchased um, by different a different group of folks. Um, the new owners didn't like the fact that the gas station across the street from them, which was also open late, um, that that gas station, because it was brightly lit, that was a place that sex workers felt that they could hang out and other people. I mean, one of the things I think it is important to know about like street sex work is like, it can really blur with cruising mm-hmm. and, and there are spaces where people are, are engaged in both. Anyway, you would think, I don't know, maybe this is naive of me, of all people <laughs> who would be hostile to the idea of having a safe space for sex workers and people who are cruising to get out of the cold and stand in the bright light. The, the Eagle really, <laughs> <laughs> I was just shocked, but like the Eagle, or at least one of the, the people quoted in the story compared the new Eagle to sort of like the hard rock cafe version. Oh of the God. Eagle. The leather bars are gentrifying. My God. It's, it's a, it's a really 
it's an endless struggle. And, and again, I would just ask like, well, what do we want our public space to be? All right. Like why, why is it appropriate to, to limit people's opportunities to socialize? Who are they hurting? Who is being damaged? And, and that once you have to answer that question, I think the whole gentrification conversation goes to a really ugly place because then it's sort of, I hope this doesn't feel extreme, but it starts to feel sort of like social cleansing, right? Mm -hmm. Just like, this is who gets to be in the city and seen you. If you want to do those things here, whether that's taking drugs or selling sex, like we just don't want to see it. And, and that, that is, is such a dangerous way to plan a city. And I just don't think it gets thought of that way all the time. It's like, you know, we're, we're asking cops to essentially decide what our lives look like in public. Is that what people want? God, I mean, the ways that we talk about quality of life uh, yeah. are so uh, upsetting and presume, I think, this split between like two kinds of people, right? Like people who want, and this is the term that is used in England a lot, quiet enjoyment of mm. of like their property and like areas and things and then people who are being antisocial or or who are undesirable in some way and i think that people who champion these kinds of policies um yeah really see themselves as being in the former group and um don't see like that's the issue right (laughs) it's like these these other people aren't seen as part of the neighborhood or the community or the city and that's really frightening. <laughs> and a certain group of people get to claim a space as theirs, even though, and particularly in the case of sex work and gentrification, you know, I'm thinking of Soho in London mm-hmm. as a, a prime example of this. It is that neighborhood's rep, you know, reputation for vice and city life and excitement right. uh, that made it a desirable neighborhood. And now, you know, my, my, my publisher Verso has an office in Soho in a building that I've very well may have been a brothel. Like many of the buildings in that <laughs> have served as brothels at some point in history. And London has a lot more history than New York. Um, you know, this is that neighborhood now is going through a radical redevelopment and what it's going to look like, I guess, on the other side is that it won't be affordable for sex workers to live or work there. And that it will continue to sort of have that sexualized reputation, but it will be as sort of a playground version of that. A safe mm-hmm. edges rubbed off. You know, this if you can come slum here is essentially <laughs> what the, the slogan should be for right, so. like the uh, the Hard Rock Eagle. <laughs> yes, I really am curious now about the Hard Rock Eagle. I I, I don't really want to go, but I kind of I just I I'm just go. picturing like jocks behind like glass enclosures. Oh my god! Like this is a jock that you know, Mister Leather International wore and like. Oh my God! This empty tub of Crisco has not been touched since 1977. <laughs> oh my God! Oh. It's so you know, places it doesn't have to go that way, right? Like the Eagle in San Francisco, like it started off as a very male-dominated space that has since transformed and become somewhere that's you know much more opening to the broader leather and queer community. It's you know that it could go that way too, but. Because San Francisco has changed so much, you know, now there are fancy high-rise condos abutting the Eagle. Um, And so, you know, you're having to contend with those neighbors. I guess I was a little more primed for that fight. It's like, you know, the the classic kind of like yuppies come in and and want everyone to shut up and go to bed early. Right. 
And but the, the the Baltimore situation is is really interesting. I guess everything can be commodified. Even a leather bar can be you know turned into the Disney version of itself. Yeah, it's almost kind of impressive. Yeah, capitalism is so powerful. Uh, even Marx was impressed by just like the rate of of capitalist change, um, and obviously like loathed it, but. Uh... So should we move on to the one segment that we do on the show? The one special segment, sure. One secret segment. Doctors hate it. That segment is called Get Wrecked. Get Wrecked. It's a segment where we recommend things to our listeners, and I always leave it up to the guest as to whether or not they would like to go first or like me to go first. So what will it be? I want you to go first. Okay. Well, um, I just thought of this while we were talking earlier. There is a space in Brooklyn called the Interference Archive. Do you know about this? I I do. I've been there once. I've, I have not been there since. I have been there once as well. Um, the Interference Archive is this really cool archive about cultural production and social movements. So there's like this archival collection they put out publications they do public programs like workshops and screenings and they just have like all kinds of amazing stuff and i went there recently for this little block party that they were hosting and i got to walk around and see all of this um all these materials from like i think it was just a little exhibit on like feminist cultural production but everything there was like like zines and like posters and buttons from like the seventies to like now. And it was just so cool because like, it's all this stuff that you don't normally get to get to see. Um, it's not like the, you know, seminal <laughs> terrible word. Um, <laughs> it's not like these, like, you know, everyone's read like these important books or essays um, or seen these like works of art that are in, um, that are in museums or that are famous, but this is all like stuff that was just like created on a small scale or like, you know, it, it was things like I saw a, um, this cartoon that this really crude cartoon that someone had drawn that was basically mocking, um, anti-porn feminists. And it had like a little note scrawled on it that was like, Oh, Hey, Susan, like, I thought you'd get a kick out of this. Like, it's just like all of these materials that were like exchanged and circulating and are really like, you know, it's the stuff that doesn't get elevated. It's like just the everyday kind of materials of social movements. And it's just so cool. And even if you can't, even if you're not in New York or you can't make it out to Brooklyn, if you go to their website, which is interferencearchive.org, they have like, you can search their collection. And I think they're working on putting more of their stuff online. So like, you can just like, actually look through a lot of it and like there's information contextualizing the work and it's just super cool like i would really recommend um going to check it out if you're able to and if you're not like checking out their website and and browsing through the catalog that's a perfect segue for what i want to recommend for folks which is if you can't make it to the interference archive if you aren't in new york um you could also go to the Prelinger Library, which is in San Francisco. And I first went there, I think in 2008. And 
Rick Prelinger, who folks may know as sort of the legendary film archivist. Like if you've seen stock footage in a doc, there's a very good chance that Rick Prelinger had something to do with locating that. He may even have it in his own collection. Um, He and uh, his real world collection, uh, which is, you know, but a fraction of his entire archive is open to the public um, in, in San Francisco on 8th Street in Soma, which is, you could also hit the Eagle after if you wanted to. <laughs> um, so Megan, uh, Rick's partner and, and also uh, runs the space. And the very first time I visited, they pulled out a copy of what was titled the Illustrated Mies Commission on Pornography. So in the 80s, under Reagan, this is sort of a moment when anti-porn feminists most publicly threw down with the religious right in these very um, salacious and evidence-free commission hearings, both in D.C., but also around the country. There were these regional hearings as well, uh, where they gave testimony about the evils of pornography, whether that was from a radical feminist perspective or a religious right perspective. And all of this testimony and the findings of the the commission itself, um, the findings of Edwin Meese, who's the attorney general at the time, are, are bound in this book. That this one is illustrated. They actually went and found the corresponding movies. And like, so it sort of reminds me of that moment when like pornography had to be sold um, in such a way that it conformed to our, our, const- our, our legal requirements for meeting community standards. Uh, I think this is the Miller test from 73. So it had to have some kind of like educational or scientific or social good attached to it. So you could have explicit material, but it had to meet that. And like this this document is very much in that, in that vein. So there are a lot of treasures there. They have a writer in residence program. Uh, they do events there. Um, and you can also see some of their holdings online, including at the internet archive, you can see many more of the audiovisual holdings. So highly <laughs> recommended, even if you can't go in person to get acquainted with the Prelinger collection. That sounds great. God, the Miller test is <laughs> so yeah. interesting. I, and like, um, what happened after that, I think maybe I've talked about this on the show at some point, but the sort of standards that the porn industry wrote up for itself, basically to avoid being prosecuted as obscenity. Um, do you know about this? I think so. I mean, I don't know as much about what came after. And I also, I'm positive that I conflated two different, very important moments in the 60s and 70s when the Supreme Court was making rulings on porn, right? There was the Roth ruling and the Miller ruling, but the Miller was community standards and educational, right? I right, think that was what right. that was. Okay. Yeah. So no, tell me what came next. God, um, I'm trying to remember who it was. Um, I'm just going to search famous pornography lawyer. Um, because basically they got the porn industry was like so worried about losing money from oh i think it was paul cambria um maybe he came after i don't know but uh basically they wrote up like these standards of like oh yeah it was him the cambria list Mm -hmm. so there's all these things that like you can't really show um because it might be judged as obscene was this one fisting sort of ended fisting, up on their list? Yes. Yes. And I have this theory that fisting is on there because it sounds really violent. Mm-hmm. And like people think fisting and they think like 
a closed fist like you would punch someone with and they think just someone's like punching someone in the vagina um, they couldn't just call it five finger finger banging right right <laughs> <laughs> although bang is kind of oh yeah um, yeah no so um basically yeah like it was like it just described all these situations that would run the risk of prosecution and like they're not necessarily illegal and neither is the depiction of them but like they're they basically are like okay well there's a chance that prosecutors could argue that these are obscene so basically err on the side of caution and avoid depicting them um and i don't know like what the standard is now because definitely some of this like some of the stuff on this list is like um you can't show facials or like you can't right uh you can't show like bondage or you can't show like um trans people <laughs> right. um, or like anal sex between men um so definitely this is like things you know, have changed people yeah show the stuff in porn and i think um maybe the people are like a little less cautious than they used to be but it was a very interesting historical document of like what is likely to be seen as obscene by a community you're reminding me of the like early 2000s.com boom moment when the website fucking machines which later became a you know the kink.com empire mm-hmm. when it came out and i i almost remember talking to porn people who were like oh my god like they're combining sm and sex like we don't do that and it's like well why don't you do that oh well it, <laughs> and it was kind of like a nod back to this cambria thing of like well we it's like but there's no that's not actually like a law that's not a federal or state law it would be fascinating to watch them try to like stipulate what sex acts were not able to be shown on camera but, you know, these are just like conventions. And there were some high profile porn prosecutions in the George W. Bush era, but mm-hmm. weird factoid, uh, John Ashcroft, who is the the attorney general um, at the early part of the Bush administration, he intended to launch a very public war on mm-hmm. obscenity and pornography, even though we know pornography has no legal definition, but obscenity and porn. And the, the press release was supposed to drop on September 10th, 2001. <laughs> So that was delayed and and much less of a priority, um, mm-hmm. which, you know, it's hard to argue that it was great that they, you know, engaged in an in equally destructive, even more destructive war on terror. Uh, but it's, you know, it. It, it totally makes sense that that's something that that administration would have swung towards. And I don't really know what the Obama administration did around obscenity. And who the fuck knows what we can have to look forward to <laughs> in this one. <laughs> Maybe we'll have to move to an offshore server. I hope not. Yeah. God, fucking dark net pornography. I said I wasn't going to talk about it. Oh, it's just like unavoidable. I'm so sorry. I apologize. <laughs> we have to mention the dark net at least one time per episode. Okay. We're <laughs> just con- to keep people on their toes. Just, whoever's listening and be, categorizing. Yeah. Just, yeah. Just to get us on those watch lists, um, <laughs> which do count for listens so thank you government to all of the torrent listeners out there in the fbi thank you for for blowing up our feed yep uh well this has been so much fun it's been great to catch up yeah absolutely i'm so glad i got to come back and also be part of this like super fun months of everyone hype stay mean podcast yeah no thank you um and we already talked about the podcast, but if you, do you want to plug it again and just sort of remind yeah. people what it's called and where they can get it? 
Sure. So my new podcast is called Terrific City. It is co-hosted by myself and the filmmaker Cheyenne Picardo. You can find us on the web at terrific.city and in Apple Podcasts and Google Play and all of those things. And we've just launched a Patreon uh, to help keep us producing more seasons. Uh, so terrific.city to get everything you need to know about that. Amazing. And where can people find your writing and other work online? Oh my gosh. I have a website, uh, melissajiragrants.com. And I'm also on Twitter at Melissa Jira. Um, I wanted to have it be Melissa Jira Grant, but it's one letter too long it's just for too Twitter. Dang long for I Twitter. And I wanted MGG, but someone else has that. So he's got that. I know. I know. I've never fought someone for a Twitter handle, but I've I have. It. Oh, right. <laughs> oh, wait. Um, the MGG. Oh, no, wait. That's someone else. I was going to say this person has 1.6 million. Uh, no, I can't find it. Um, yeah. I don't even know if they really use it. That's oh, what's wait. even more appalling. It's Manila gay guy. Yes. And I don't think he's tweeted in a long time. Uh, no, he tweeted this month. Oh, all right. So, well, I can't take God that bless. from him. Yeah, no, he's, yeah. he's living his life. I have fought yeah. people for, well, not fought, but uh, there's a guy who has at merit. And mm. I was like, hey, you haven't tweeted in a while. Can I have your account, please? And he was like, no, I'm going to use this for something important. And... Uh, <laughs> Oh, he is tweeting again, so good for him. Um, and then I did get Merit K from someone who hadn't tweeted in a very long time. Um, I contacted her on Goodreads. Amazing. And uh, she was like, yeah, totally. So um, that was great. But uh, That's so sweet. Yeah. yeah Wait, what was your Twitter handle before that? I forget. Um, it was my uh, legal last name before I stopped using that for like... That's for right public consumption that's um, right and there is I actually when we never would have used our names on the internet it's right so funny. right there is someone who um so people frequently misspell my name with one t mm. and there is someone on twitter who has merit k with one t and she's a reporter for npr <gasps> so uh very rarely i will get dms meant for her like i got one from like a uh, the assistant for for like I think the mayor of Baltimore, who was oh like, "Hi, God. we're trying to organize this interview," and I was like, <laughs> "I think you want the other one." Did it not tip you off that I'm like a cartoon pterodactyl <laughs> that doesn't have anything about NPR in my book? <laughs> you know, but, uh, this is what happens when millennials get jobs in government. No, I have no idea. Like, <laughs> uh, that's incredible. Yeah. Anyway, I hope she doesn't get my DMs, and yeah. I, I wish her the best. And I say that a lot, but I do actually. Um, but yeah, thank you again. Thanks for having me. And um, yeah, I hope you have a great weekend. I will talk to you later. You too. Talk to you later. Bye. Bye. Woodland Secrets is hosted by Merrick Kay and produced and edited by me, Nick Bravo. Woodland Secrets is a part of Stay Mean, the world's only podcast network. We're entirely listener-supported. If you enjoy the show, please consider becoming a patron of Stay Mean at woodlandsecrets.co support. For as little as three bucks a month, you'll get access to a monthly newsletter and frequent bonus episodes of our shows. If you'd like to have a message read on the show, head to woodlandsecrets.co messages. You can help people find out about the show, Please mention us on Twitter. We're at Woodland Podcast and at Stay Mean Co. Or rate and review us in iTunes. We really appreciate it. 
Thanks for listening.